Hey, DTC pod, it's time to let your customers enjoy the products they love without the friction of reordering. That's why the world's most innovative brands like Pete's Coffee and Il Maquillage rely on order group subscriptions to build long lasting customer relationships and recurring revenue. Easy to manage and seamless for shoppers, Order Groove comes with the tools your business needs to become the next big subscription success story. Visit ordergroove.com slash DTCpod today to receive two months off your first contract. Again, that's ordergroove.com slash DTCpod. Also, are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. Andrew, I believe you guys launched Grasa really recently. Is that right? How long ago did you guys launch? That's the best part about the name, I think, because everybody can kind of say it their own way. It's like part of the brand story. It's Grasa, it's Grazza, it's Grasa, it's like Grasa. It's everything. It doesn't matter. You're your own person. So so we love when people say it differently. We launched last Tuesday and things have been insane since then. But yeah, Tuesday the 11th was our launch day and everything that we set up was organic. We didn't do any paid activations and it worked. <laughs> That's exciting. How long were you preparing for that for? It takes a long time to start a company. I think like the people that somehow pull it together in four, five, six months. And I have a lot of respect for that. But I think when you're trying to do something different, you're looking at easily a year plus. And then when you bring together fundraising and finding a co-founder, it took a good 18 months to get guys off the ground. And did you validate that before in any way? Or, you know, this is this an insight from your background? Uh, like, how did that come about? Listen, I've worked at a bunch of like CPG sweethearts. I worked at Warby, I worked at Casper, worked at Magic Spoon. When you're not starting the company, you just don't get the vantage point of the founders and you don't really know all the effort that goes into it. And I had never really asked, you know, I was always just working. I never really asked, how long did it take? But yeah, I think um, CPG entrepreneurs now are a little bit luckier because the contractor and agency ecosystem, if you know how to navigate it, is the strongest it's ever been. So there's a lot of work that can happen in parallel. You know, we, we definitely couldn't have done this alone. Yeah, 100%. And one thing, just backtracking a little bit for anyone who's tuning in and wondering what Graza is and why we're so excited about it. So Andrew recently, as you mentioned, launched Graza about a week ago, and they fully sold out all their product at their first week after launch. So a couple of things that we're really excited to dive into as well is like, like you were saying, it takes a lot of time to like prep for a company launch, a product launch. And what's really great is that you guys were able to execute that like super, super successfully, right? And as you just mentioned, like there was a lot of planning and a lot of stuff went into this over the last 18 months. It does, you don't just have a super successful product launch overnight and just be like, oh my God, that just randomly worked, right? I think maybe if we can start the story why don't we go back in time a little bit? Like you said, you worked at a variety of these CPG brands that everyone knows. And then you decide you're like, hey, I want to start something on my own. So what, it, what does it look like then and in the roadmap from then till now? Yeah, wow, it's a throwback. <laughs> you know, like what I found is when you work at really hot CPG companies, you are an addict, of course, because 
the company you're working for is growing and growth is the fuel that fires the whole engine. But I definitely was looking to replicate that fire for something that I cared about. And olive oil is a dream because it's objectively healthy. It is delicious. The supply chain is beautiful. The places where olive trees are grown and harvested are beautiful. And people's general reaction is like, shit, I love olive oil. It's kind of everybody's best friend. You know, it definitely had like strong tailwinds. But when I actually thought, okay, like it's time to start a company, super saturated market, like investors had seen decks come across their desks recently, really fragmented supply chain. So all of the reasons not to do it started coming up at the same time as the energy to do it. But I couldn't stop. Like I knew that we were going to get an olive oil company off the ground. 18 months ago, the idea was so different than it is now. That's what I was going to ask. That's what I was curious about. You know, how did that change over the 18 month period? Yeah. So I definitely had like the dreamy go to the Mediterranean and you get there and you want to bring back the best of the best and the lifestyle and the table and the dinners. And I definitely was naive. So, you know, I came back to New York suitcase full of really amazing olive oil. And I had a, in the past, I had a stage at Gramercy Tavern uh, when I was like, oh, maybe I don't, I don't know if I want to work in startups. I want to maybe be a chef. So I got really, really close with Mike Anthony, the, the executive chef at, at Gramercy Tavern. I get back to New York. I'm still working at Magic Spoon. And I find time with Mike to do a tasting at the restaurant. And, you know, we're trying really expensive, really delicious, really crazy olive oils. And he looks me in the eye and he's like, you know, I have 10 of you in this zip code who I can call on to get me amazing Italian Portuguese, Spanish, French, Argentinian olive oil, anywhere I want in the world. Like, don't start another boutique luxury olive oil company. Don't do it. It's not what we need. Middle America doesn't need that because it's not even just middle America. America doesn't need that. We, we can't afford it. So that changed my perspective completely. And ever since then, Mass and scale and mass premium have been like the leading principles for this company, of course, without sacrificing quality at all. I would put up our olive oil against any gold medal, whatever award olive oil there is in the world. But that conversation definitely dictated how the brand was built, how the supply chain was built. It was reverse engineered a lot from that moment of Let's, let's build something that's actually for everybody that has a fair price point and doesn't have, you know, a grotesque heritage attachment to it in terms of its brand or a luxury appeal. Totally. So you guys, you just said, hey, we think there's an opportunity here to go after the big market for olive oil, not just be, you know, one boutique little olive oil that's super, super premium, but like, you know, let's go after like you said, all of America, everyone uses olive oil, everyone buys olive oil. And it's something that you could speak to by providing them like a premium product at an accessible price, right? Yeah, I think people had heard the story that like olive oil is a racket in North America. North America is the dumping ground of olive oil. And how is olive oil so cheap? It must be so shitty. There's a lot like, you know, Dr. Oz is in a lawsuit about olive oil fraud 
like the information is out there, but I, I think we just wanted to not make people feel like they've been duped because that's one way to do it. We just wanted to add some life and some sex appeal to it and some fun, you know, big part of the development process and idea was when we were like, screw it, we're going to put this in a chef inspired squeeze bottle. That was like a whole deviation from the norm. And that was a lot of energy from the culinary community, a lot of energy from the investment community. People were like, damn, this is going to really be usable on all social media verticals. You can do collabs with restaurants. And it all kind of started coming together when we flipped the form factor. You know, olive oil is always sold in the same dark green glass bottle with a random label with an olive branch on it. And when we chose squeeze bottle, everything changed in terms of the visual appeal. And this is something that, you know, makes us not only a CPG food company, makes us a tool in the kitchen. You know, my dream is to launch like a WWE belt style thing where you got the olive oil in your kitchen belt and you're just taking sizzle out to do this, taking drizzle out to do that. You know, we're trying to have fun in the kitchen. Yeah, I think that's so different than, and the one important thing that you mentioned there, I think two things. One is like, obviously on the branding side of things, you need to be able to stand out. And I think what you would see if you're just looking at objectively at the olive oil space, like you said, see a bunch of dark green glass bottles with a label with some farm in some Mediterranean country, right? Who's been growing olives for hundreds and hundreds of years and differentiating yourself like that isn't going to be easy, right? Like, for the typical consumer, they're like, okay, great. This olive oil comes from this farm. This one comes from this farm. But to be able to really turn that idea on its head and say, hey, we're going to go completely against the grain and we're going to introduce, like you said, squeeze bottles, you know, that takes, that's a big risk. But at the same time, like that's where the opportunity is as well to like stand out from the entire existing field. Yeah, we knew like, right. When you start a CPG company in New York, you're going to get presented to a lot of branding agencies that have big price tags. And we knew, we knew, we knew that like, if we did anything, we needed to capture somebody's attention for a millisecond while walking the inner aisles of a supermarket. Online, it was going to be way easier, but in physical retail, we knew we had a very limited amount of time. So we went for it. Big illustration funky colors and a squeeze bottle in a aisle that doesn't have it for anyone that's listening go to graza.co because the website is gorgeous i was i was going through it and it was so refreshing to see such a new taste and branding into olive oil i mean i i got it right away when i saw it right i almost didn't have to read much because it's a functionality component too and how the packaging is made it's just annoying to have to measure oil and like put it in the pan and spread it across and you end up putting too much and like if you want to just put it on a sandwich or something like you can't it just doesn't have that and just so by seeing it i was able to get it right away which is something that isn't easy to necessarily nail in cpg because you know even though you do have the quality and the health component most businesses have to do so much education to the consumer but your product has something to it visually that you almost get it by looking at it and i feel like that's a very unique element yeah i mean the video on our homepage that took four months of prepping, I think, a lot of storyboarding, a lot of thinking through because you have to decide, am I going to go video or am I going to go stills? And, and we just kept pushing, no, we're going to get both. We're going to get both. 
and we're lucky that that it ended up working out but prepping for that shoot day was crazy because there was that essence that we wanted to capture right away which is that bottle in motion you know and i, th I think we did it it feels like it's enables you to just get in your kitchen and cook you know i don't need to show you a caprese salad being drizzled with olive oil with some basil that like that that visual is dead it's still delicious but we need to pull ourselves away from that into this product being used by people, by all types of people for all types of foods, whether it's a chicken cutlet or ice cream or your dumplings and pot stickers, like that's, that's what we're going for. You know, given your background with Warby Parker, Magic Spoon, et cetera, New York, you know, you definitely knew some, you know, big names and, and as you said, with big price tags and branding and content, et cetera. So can you share a little bit more about like what your selection process was when vetting out these partners and who to work with for anyone that's listening? And it's like going through the process of choosing who's going to do their design, their content. How does that, you know, how does that split up and what should you be looking for? for for finding the right partner because the opportunity cost of going with the wrong one is extremely high yeah i mean there's two layers to this question one is like if you have the capital or if you don't if you are fundraising a lot of the investors that you're fundraising from are going to prepare you for how expensive your brand development is going to be but they're also going to prepare you for how necessary it is Um, and how it's only going to help. So it depends. I'm going to assume that my advice will be most helpful to folks that have raised on safe notes, some pre-seed capital or seed capital, maybe on a deck or a design that like their friend, you know, our, our original design was a Dr. Bronner's bottle with a Mike's Hot Honey cap put together with some like Photoshop work. That's how it started. But we knew we knew we were gonna work with a, a great branding and design agency. We worked with Gander, Take a Gander, uh, is how you can find them online. They also did Magic Spoon and Bonza and Gotham Greens and Misfit Market. So I knew they had the heat. You know, we decided to explore a equity and cash partnership with them which I think is a great way to work with long-term partners. I think it's a great way to keep people invested and honest. They're not going to prioritize you more than other clients because that would just be unfair. But I bet in their spare time, they're going to be thinking about you. And I think Gander is beyond proud of what we created together. Obviously, we could not have done it without them. I think working with a great branding agency not only is like the visual aspect, They instill amazing creative project management into your company from an early point. And their first job is to extract all of the thoughts that you've had for six months alone, writing in your iPhone notes, writing on Google Docs, sending emails. Their job is to get that all out of you. And I think if we didn't work with some professionals like that, it would still just be stuck in my brain somewhere and I'd be very frustrated. So yeah, and besides that, it's the classic, like you have to reference check. You have to right away ask for three companies that you worked with. I'm going to speak to all of them and you got to put in the effort. What I will say is don't pay more than 150 grand for branding work. Like that is when things get crazy. You know, we got some offers in for 250, 300K, 350K, and we're going to do these data insights and consumer insights I kind of read all that stuff as BS. Like 
if your your job is a creative agency, I'm going to pay you for the creative. If your job is to give me consumer insights, I'm going to partner with McKinsey before I partner with a creative agency for that. You know, so know what you're getting um, and know what you need. And my last bit of advice would be like the scopes of work that come through, you are going to be held to it. And if you deviate from scope, you are going to be billed for it. So don't take those lightly. Make sure exactly what you want is in there. And if you don't know how to ascertain that information, get help from a founder. Go in the CPG founders Slack groups and, and figure out who can help you figure that stuff out. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more, all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot I-O slash podcast. And look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. No, I think that's a really good point, especially in terms of like when you're working with another agency or someone else, just understanding the scope that it's going to take to be able to kick off the project. And, you know, I I think especially for first time founders, that might be a little bit overwhelming trying to navigate because there's there's so many things that you may not know that actually you should be factoring into your scope. There are things that are really important. But if you're trying to be like, oh, no let's keep this outside of scope for now. And then when you ultimately get down the line, it's just going to create more work. So un- really understanding what the value is you're trying to extract. And I think what I like about your story and how you guys focused on it was the understanding that you had all these great product ideas in your head. You had all these great different ideas about different ways to sell it. You had your own experience. You'd actually worked with this firm and you were saying, hey, let's sit down and get all this great stuff that I have in my head and let's figure out the way that we can communicate all that really high value to the customer. Cause I think what Ramon was saying, even when I pulled up the website and went through it, it was like, okay, this is easy. I understand exactly what this is. This feels fresh. It feels unique. And I think that's a really hard thing for, for brands to get to. And I think that's very like the value of that, right? The value of a new customer, like you said, whether it's seeing your product in a physical retail retail aisle, or if it's them seeing your website online and being like, oh, I get what that is. That's fresh. And I, I want to buy from you guys. Like that isn't an easy, you, like you can't take that for granted and you can't put a price tag on that almost, you know? I mean, it's just, it's just so ripe for any kind of marketing. Like I just, I just want to use it like, right. Like not many CPG products have that aspect to it where you just want to use it because I imagine you guys brainstorming around, around marketing. It must be so fun for this product because, you know, you could do so many campaigns on like just putting olive oil on everything and anything. Speaking of that, like what is what? Okay. So, you know, you've got the concept, you're doing the launch and you mentioned earlier that the customer acquisition strategy was organic. So what was the plan there? What is the plan to get, for example, from zero to a hundred thousand, um, you know, to your first hundred thousand or, or, or those initial customers that, that bought that first inventory that you had? We're just about at a hundred K already. This was like the craziest launch. We're selling a two pack for 30 bucks online. That's a lot of $30 orders. So I definitely miss the days of selling a thousand dollar mattress where if you sold like 40 in a day, you're like, that's a, that's a great day. You know, we have to sell a lot of olive oil, but 
for us, like we were very lucky that we tied together a web of partners, social media, you know, experts, content marketing experts. And we invested in those relationships and we made sure we spent time together and it created a really harmonious launch. That means that, you know, we were paying people when we were pre-revenue to not drive revenue yet, but to strategize with us, which is always a very hairy area to be in uh, because pre-launch sucks. Like you are, it's just, it's just emotional turmoil. You have this money, you're spending it. You know, you feel guilty that everybody's telling you they're going to give you more money. Don't worry about it. It's very confusing, but we stuck to it with, with experts. And for us, all this organic pre-launch effort was mostly around seeding. So I think if you have a physical product that is affordable to seed, you have already struck gold. And then you have to have faith in yourself and your team and your story and how you package it and the notes that you write and everything that you do, that these creators are going to naturally feel inclined to participate. So we took a seeding approach that was no strings attached, no asks, nothing no incessant communication. If you want to squeeze with us, if you want to have some dope olive oil, drop your address. And if you don't, like no hard feelings at all. If you only want to do a paid campaign, we'll speak to you in a year. You know, I think that having a deep respect for the creator economy is vital for a CPG founder because, you know, these are people that their skill is mocked sometimes. And, oh, you have 20,000 followers on Instagram. And are you putting it all? Like, these are people that are trying to hustle and make a career out of this. And getting behind a camera with food is really hard, really hard. I have tried to do it many times and my videos are awful. So I just think having like the utmost respect for them and treating them like they are the key for all of us. So seating really worked. Like. We seeded organically to Molly Baz, 600,000 followers, best-selling New York Times cookbook, the coolest of the cool kids in cooking right now. And she posted a story on day two of launch, totally unexpected and like explosive. I think you really, you know, you said that, you know, if you're already blessed with having a product that you can seed, I think that comes from your experience with potentially Casper. So, and I'm glad you see that as an opportunity and double down on it, you know, really put all your eggs into that basket, knowing that that you had an advantage because here at Trend, we, we do the same. And there are some products that we're like, man, they have such a unique advantage for seeding, whereas some companies, they just can't. It just doesn't make much sense right i mean for content like you can always make it work but for some companies it's a challenge and if your company you know you have the advantage to where you know you can be you know seeding hundreds of products like if you have the means to be able to do that you should definitely see that as a unique competitive advantage because there are industries that just can't do that yeah yeah we're lucky plus like you have to be pragmatic about how you spend your capital early on and what better way than getting your product in the hands of people? That's going to be someone cooking. CPAs in this industry, just like every other industry, are insane. And it's a war out there. So building relationships with creators is, is a step ahead, I think.
So just to recap a little bit about what we talked about in, in terms of like pulling off the successful launch. So we go back 18 months. That's when you decide to start kicking things off. You obviously go through, you set up all your infrastructure, your supply chain and everything like that. Get that in place. You're working with a phenomenal agency that's helping you think through brand design, um, website, physical packaging, all that kind of stuff. And now you've like done some amazing stuff in terms of your seating to gear up for your launch, right? So the two questions I have, the first would be in regards to the seating, how much are we talking you seated in the first like wave, right? Because I'm sure there's a lot of different founders out there of D2C brands who are like in the phases that you are and they're, they're grappling with this question. They're like, how much product do I seed? And is it going to be worth it and all that kind of stuff? And I think what's really important about what you said is like, you're like, hey, we trusted the people, we found the right people, we seeded it and we had faith in them because we believed in them and it ended up paying off big. If you could just kind of summarize like what that actually looked like in terms of volume in the early days for seeding, how, like how much was that? And then also, or we can go into other stuff after that, but like how much are we talking about? A lot, like 25 units week over week. 25 two packs. So doing that for two months, you know, adds up. And some weeks it was more, some weeks it was less. We essentially at our office here in Brooklyn, we laid down the law and we we're like, we're not going to seed like anything that's coming over, you know, palletized to our warehouse. We're not touching that. That's for customers, but we need to seed. So we had like, I don't know, 400 liters of olive oil at our office and we hand filled everything we invited our friends got pies of joe's pizza we bought a so we're like the first olive oil company to induction seal their bottles for freshness induction sealers are really expensive factory lines so we found one on alibaba that we could buy and have at our office it was super janky and like we had to figure out the calibration and the voltage and everything and it was crazy but we sealed like 400 of each product and we seeded just about all of it. And then in terms of like the coordination between when you're seeding product and when you're actually like launching to your live store, how did that line up in terms of timing, right? Because that's logistically, that's that's got to be tricky to pull off. Yeah. I mean, you can't really nail that. You seed consistently week over week in waves to keep the momentum up. So we had launched our social channel three weeks before launch. So it seemed like we existed already right we already had people cooking with our product and the goal of these seedings right actually wasn't performance driven at all because there was nothing to convert on it was just maybe they'll go to our webpage, maybe they'll follow us on instagram maybe they'll sign up for our newsletter which 600 people ended up signing up for it so we're like damn that's 600 customers that we know we're going to have on day one because they signed up for a pre-launch newsletter there no offer nothing so yeah we just trusted honestly we just trusted that it was going to work out so just breaking it down, and again, so the way you were thinking about it is you weren't saying this is all, like initially when you're doing some of that seeding, right? You don't, they don't have a product to buy necessarily. The conversion, I guess, at that standpoint would be subscribed to the email list and also some brand recognition. So you were, the first products that are getting seeded, you're like, okay, we're going to test this out. We're going to see how, how our creators react to it. We're going to get some brand impressions. So if they decide to create content with it, and if anything, we'll build awareness and maybe get some conversion. So that's kind of phase one. And then phase two was probably, is, is that when you guys were closer to actually deploying the site or was there anything in between? Yeah, I mean, we definitely 
shot our shots when we got closer. You know, we definitely have A-list people that we're going after, and we definitely shot our shot closer to launch, and it, it paid off for us. I think that's awesome insight. And also really, what's really cool is just hearing that perspective from, again, someone who's like right in the process of pulling off a brand on this sort of trajectory, right? Because this is something, this is like the dream for a lot of people who are launching brands. It's like, okay, how do I launch successfully? And then maybe now what we can get into is like, so now where do we go from here, right? Like now you've pulled off your launch. I've I've seen on the site, if we go there, you guys have already said you're going to be ready to fulfill new orders in a week or two. So where do we go from here? Well, I feel like the one thing that we haven't covered yet, which will cover this entire question is this brand is built also for physical retail, like wholesale margins for us were critical when building the economic viability of this business. The reality is 99% of olive oil is still bought in the supermarket and supermarkets experience like very limited love in between the aisles because it's just perceived as not fresh, but we are selling a fresh fruit juice in between the aisles. So for us right now, we are having like the most exciting conversations with big national retailers. Besides that, a big consideration is when do you turn on paid advertising? You know, how long can I ride this wave of momentum? And I think it's naive to not turn it on sooner than later because things will fizzle out Organic is the best way to go, obviously, and work 20 hours a day and and hire the right people and and get your product out there to make it happen and don't stop. But it's not long term viable. This is actually really interesting because you guys launched D2C. You have all your creators creating content. And we've spoken with a bunch of different, you know, CPG brands. So when you introduce retail for your product, that's like a very interesting concept because for some brands they might say hey we're going to focus 99% d2c we're going to continue to grow and then maybe after year 2 now we'll start thinking about retail where where you're is right out of the gates you already have you know a mind for retail so where do you you said you're already having those conversations but if you had to just think about like call it the next year how are you planning for um that mix of your business in terms of where you're focused on retail, where you're focused on D2C and how those two interact with each other? Yeah. The interaction part is a difficult question to answer. How we focus on it is we divide and conquer. So I have an amazing co-founder, Alan, who came from apparel. I actually had an early conversation with Brian Spaley, who's one of our investors. And I asked him about where can we cross pollinate from other industries? Because if you're like a food person, a food startup person, you kind of have a pretty hefty price tag. Like if you're the best VP of growth of a food company or the best VP of ops of a food company, that's we can't pay for that. So I was like, where can we cross pollinate and find someone? And apparel came up and I got introduced to to Alan and Alan had run a $80 million business just at Costco in apparel, you know, and it's the retail mass mindset that we needed. So Alan runs our entire sales team. Alan facilitates, you know, our selection of brokers and a whole bunch of other stuff, but dividing and conquering in those channels, it was always kind of a dream to be like, okay, maybe we can actually have different ownership of digital and physical from day one. And obviously it's not a perfect line, but we're doing a pretty damn good job. 
so yeah, like for us, we have to figure out how to supply 1500 stores, you know, it's a huge, huge challenge for a new brand. So you are though thinking about like running the D to C arm, like a little bit separately from the retail arm. And then you have your own people who are focused exclusively on retail, building that up and scaling the business that way. A hundred percent. Like our interactions with our customers digitally will always be so vital to our community building and brand building. And we're not going to let those strategies conflate with what works on a retail shelf. I don't think they're completely transferable. And I also think it's a pipe dream to be like, oh, like we'll get our physical retail customers and convert them over to digital customers and everyone's going to be happy. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. No, one, no one's going to be happy. Yeah, I feel like they're just such different kind of operations. I mean, look, those, the olive oil on the little glass with the green leaf in front of it, like, you know, yeah, they do have like kind of this old school branding, but like those are the ones sitting in the shelves right now and they have all that distribution. And so, but it's exciting to hear that the buyers, right, are also very enthusiastic about and optimistic about having this conversation to seeing a completely new approach hit their stores. It's almost like a really refreshing moment of something that like they knew they've been wanting and needing but they didn't know exactly what it was and it seems like that's exactly what you're you know putting in front of them man ramon should work in our sales team that's well put. <laughs> <laughs> that's really that's really well put. i'm gonna take i'm gonna take a note there yeah yeah you knew you needed this you didn't know what yeah this ecc <laughs> bot thing doesn't work out i'll, I'll hit you up <laughs> Okay. So yeah, man, um, you know, I think, you know, as we come here towards the end, you know, I think one of the things on my mind is in Blaine, I don't know if you want to add anything to this is how is life now? How is your day to day different? How is life different for those that might be in other companies thinking of, you know, making the leap that might have a unique insight that might have that bug, you know, itching them of something that that they feel like they should bring out to the world? How is your life different now on a day to day? It's interesting because I'm definitely not healthy in many ways. You know, I'm not like sleeping as much as I'd want to, and I'm not making time for myself and I'm, you know, not exercising as much as I want to. All of that stuff is real. You know, I worked for people that I watched them suffer because it was their company and I got to go to the gym at 7 p.m. and go out to dinner with friends. Like that's not my reality right now. But I think at the same time, you tune into like a different stamina, a different energy that just keeps you going. You know, yeah, yesterday was Sunday and I was answering every single customer email that we got because I think it's really, really important, especially with these early customers. And that's in thanks to amazing training that I had at companies where customer service was everything. So... I'm not going to sit here and say that like my personal health is at an all-time high. It's not, but the community that we're building in the food space is insane. It is a lot of fun to work in olive oil. Every time we go to dinner here in Brooklyn, we bring a bottle and we're just squeezing it everywhere. You know, it's it is fun. We're going to build out a team to help for sure and that's going to be so exciting. So maybe in a year and a half, two years, I can come up for some air. But but right now, I want to put everything into this because at the end of the day, we're selling something to people that actually is good for them. You know, it's a pretty easy sell. 
We just have to get in front of them. That's amazing, Andrew. So we just want to thank you for the time and all the insight. It's been so fun to learn more about Graza, the stage you guys are at. And, you know, next time you make it down to Miami, let's run this back in person and we can check in on all the progress and all the exciting things that you guys are doing um, post-successful launch. For sure, for sure. So Andrew, where can people keep up? Like, you know, I want to try it out. It's sold out on the website. Where is this, you know, a list to get on the wait list or do you just buy it and get on the wait list? And, and where can people keep up with you and Graza? It's a good point because that means our website UX could be a little bit better, but we are still taking orders. So essentially if you order right now, your order will be fulfilled in one to two weeks. And we're being over communicative, emailing people all the time just to set realistic expectations. We have a lot of inventory coming down the pipe, so I'm not too concerned. I feel like the coolest places to follow us is obviously Instagram. On Twitter, we're having a great time. Most of our handles are getgraza, G-E-T-G-R-A-Z-A. And then we have a dope blog. We call it the blog instead of blog. So blog with a G for Graza. And we're posting recipes there every single day. So, so yeah, a lot of places to stay in touch with us. TikTok. Our videos on TikTok are going crazy. TikTok is the place to be. Well, there you have it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Andrew, very much. And um, hopefully we could run it up again soon. For sure. Thanks, guys.